We have one final section to consider in chapter 2. You can pray for me, though, that I get this section finished today. We left off. I didn't quite finish verse the, the last couple of verses from our previous section, so I'm going to I'm going to start in verse 38 uh, and read through the end of the chapter, and then our study today will start with verse 40. So Acts 2:38, you know the setting, the day of Pentecost, the disciples, the 120 who were waiting for 10 days in the upper room and praying in obedience to the Lord who had told them to wait after his ascension in the city of Jerusalem. And so they obediently did exactly that. And while they were waiting on day 10, the Holy Spirit was poured out by the Lord Jesus upon his 120 disciples. That, That amazing thing then spilled out into the streets and some 3,000 curious people from the city of Jerusalem gathered there to find out what was going on. Peter took that as the Lord's opportunity to proclaim the gospel. He begins to proclaim the gospel in the ways that we've been studying in some detail. And then that, lead, uh, that led us to how the, the crowd's hearts were pierced in our previous study. And they they cry out to Peter and to the apostles and say, what should we do in response to this message we've heard? And verse 38 picks up, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, excuse me, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, so where we left off was right at uh, the vicinity of verse 40 and 41 as Peter has given the crowd instructions about next steps as they're now, their hearts are pierced, they're open, They believe the message that Peter has proclaimed. What should we do next? And he instructs them to repent and to be baptized. We've we've focused in verse 38 and studied all the details of verse 38 and 39. And then in, um, in verse 40, we're just given a brief description that what he had to say with them, 
to them that day was broader than just what the Lord has preserved for us here in chapter two. There were many other words that Peter uh, used as words of exhortation, uh, urging their hearts to respond in this new relationship with the Lord that has just been formed. Uh, The words that we have recorded, I think, are what the Lord considers to be a sufficient summary for our understanding so that we don't walk away from Acts chapter 2 with any misunderstandings about what was communicated that day. But understand that there was, you know, if you read through all of Acts chapter 2 and especially the the interaction between Peter and the crowd that day, uh, it seems like it's only a a, a 10-minute interaction, most likely much longer than that as he had many other words on his heart to exhort them. But the essence of his exhortation was, save yourselves from this crooked generation. I talked for a few minutes earlier in our service today about the, uh, the aspect of what's going on in our present society, in our present culture. And I certainly believe that we, in a similar way to this, are living in the midst of what Peter described as a crooked generation. But understand that in those days, there was a very significant description that was happening here because this was the final generation of a society the final generation of a culture what was happening this this all is taking place in the year 30 AD we've talked about this before but it's worth re-emphasizing before we move on to the rest of the chapter from 30 AD there was a single generation that the Lord Jesus had already identified He had spoken about it in detail. We saw this in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, both in chapter 23 and in chapter 24 of Matthew, where he talked about something that was coming upon this present generation of people that were alive at the time that he was speaking to them. And that that is in the context of the biblical concept of a generation lasting 40 years. And so from 30 AD, as as this is being communicated, You add 40 years and you come, of course, to that fateful date in their experience, which is 70 AD. And something dramatic did happen in 70 AD, as you know, and that is there was a a rebellion that had fomented uh, in the Jewish culture against the Roman oppressors that were uh, capturing, had captured them and were maintaining dominion over them. That rebellion started back in 66 AD, some three and a half years before 70 AD's events, but it culminated in a reinvasion, a reconquest of the city of Jerusalem. And the Roman legions uh, devastated, they surrounded the city of, of Jerusalem, laid siege to it, they devastated the city, and then in the very final elements of that siege, uh, the, the last remaining uh, re- rebels that were still alive, they uh, retreated into the temple which served for their purposes like a giant stone fortress and the Roman legions attacked the temple and it resulted in all of those that were in the temple being uh, killed by the Roman legions and the temple itself being set on fire and then dismantled by order of the general of the Roman legion dismantled stone from stone so that the entire temple structure was completely removed and devastated. That's what Peter is talking about. He is aware, we don't know to what extent he knew all of the details at the, at the moment that he spoke this, but he's aware that 
they are living in the midst of a crooked generation and there is a judgment coming upon that generation of people and it would it would come to the date exactly 40 years from the day that peter is speaking these words and so they were baptized as a result of his warning his exhortations and they received the the gospel of salvation and they were saved and on that day there were approximately because we have the word look in verse 41 the word about there were added that day about 3,000 souls so I don't know if they counted exact numbers but we have a a summary of approximately 3,000 people responded in a saving way to the gospel message that day but what the the last detail I want you to notice in verse 41 before we launch into this next and final section in verse starting in verse 42 is that it describes there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the word added makes a point of emphasis that would be easy to miss. It would be easy to, to read and not really understand the full implication of what's being described. When, they, when they're described as being added, we're meant to ask the question and have as a context a, an understanding, added to what? There were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were added to something for some purpose, but what is it that they were added to? And the only right answer to that is they were added to the church. The idea here is that these 3,000 didn't hear the gospel message, come to embrace it, were changed by it, were transformed by it, and then went out and all lived 3,000 disconnected individual lives each one of them having their own relationship with the Lord, but living out their walk with the Lord just based upon their own understanding, their own, their own uh, perspectives, their own commitments and their own priorities, but they're all just kind of scattered and disconnected from each other. They were, all 3,000 of them were added to something. Now the church at the moment that they were added to the church was very small. It was just the seed of what would eventually blossom into a a huge tree, a fruitful tree in history. There were only, prior to this moment, there were only 120 in that upper room that had had previously been saved but had now been filled with the Holy Spirit. And when these 3,000 were saved, they were added to the 120 so that now the church was some approximately 3,120 souls strong. The point is that when we're saved, from the Lord's perspective, not necessarily from every individual's perspective that gets saved, that's that's really the responsibility of those who are already saved to help people to understand what has just happened to them when they are saved. But from the Lord's perspective, and certainly from the apostles' perspective, as they were leading this day's events, when we're saved, we are added to the church. Now, I'm not talking about in modern Christianity perspective. They were added to a specific denomination. They were added to a specific version or a specific variety of what we now call church. But they were added to the church in its most essential element. You remember the emphasis we made in our study in the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 16 when Peter was the first one by the grace of God to recognize Jesus for who he truly was the son of God, the Messiah. The Lord Jesus said to him, you've only come to see this and understand this by by the, 
by the work of the Father in your heart. And then he goes on immediately after Peter makes that declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds by saying to him, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And what Jesus does there is he gives a summary mission statement about why he came to this world. He came to this world in order to build a church. Not structurally, like build a a giant facility in Jerusalem, like the temple, for instance, but spiritually, to build a, a community of true believers, a community of faith, a community of true disciples and true followers of his, to join their lives to himself and to one another in a redefining life relationship. Something that would change their lives forever. And that's exactly what takes place here on the day of Pentecost. Now, immediately after this brief description that 3,000 souls were added to this brand new church, we have this brief section starting in verse 42 through the end of the chapter describing the life of this church. And we could call this church, it's, it's commonly referred to in, uh, in Christian theology and in church history as the early church, meaning this is the first version that we see in scripture of the, the life of the church. But I'm gonna change that slightly and call this the earliest church. This is the beginning of what becomes church, known as church. And there are things in this section, verses 42 through 47, that are meant to speak to our lives today. And I've been using this term all the way through our study in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'll use it one last time before we finish chapter 2 and move on into the rest of the book of Acts. I believe the first two chapters of the book of Acts are meant to function as a template, meaning there are things that are revealed in these first two chapters that are meant to be in in a sense like a model for all successive generations of Christianity and all successive generations of Christians and all successive generations of church to look at and then to compare what they see here in the text to what we see here in terms of the way we're doing what we're doing. So as I read it, I meant to compare my individual life relationship with the Lord to their relationship with the Lord. And I meant to, I think, compare our corporate relationship with the Lord as church to what we see as their corporate relationship with the Lord as church. Now, I don't think we're meant to do this in what I'm going to call a formulaic way. But I do think we're meant to look at what are the... What are the essential principles that, that characterize the way this first group of saved people came together in their relationship to the Lord and their relationship to one another? And is it, is it similar to what we see in our corporate relationship to the Lord and to one another as church today? Or are there differences? And if there are differences, does that mean that they were off base or does it mean that we're off base 
Or does it mean that no one's off base and that you can just do church however you want to do church? Or you can just do the Christian life however you want to do the Christian life? If this is functioning as a template, then it's meant to guide us in our own priorities, our own decisions, our own patterns, and our own behaviors, both individually and corporately. Now, there's one key word that I want to focus on in verse 42 before we get any further. Reading verse 42 again. And they, this is now the 3,120 saved people at this point in history. They devoted themselves. And then it goes on to briefly describe the rest of verse 42, what it is that they devoted themselves to. But before we talk about the four things that are identified as the focus of their devotion, I think we need to consider that according to Acts 2, functioning as a template, the true Christian life and the true church life is a life of devotion above all things. It's a devoted life. And the word that the, the man who wrote the book of Acts by the, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, who was Luke, he chose from the Greek language a specific word to use to focus our understanding and attention on on what characterized them more than anything else. And he chose this word, translated into English as devoted, and it has this sense, this meaning. And it's similar in meaning to our word for devotion. It means, or describes a persistent, single-minded focus on one thing above all other things. A persistent, meaning ongoing. It wasn't just, wow, the day of Pentecost, it was so exciting. They were all filled with the Spirit. Look at this. 3,000 people came to know the Lord in one day. So exciting. Then they wake up the next day and ho-hum, we're back to normal life. Apart from, yeah, that was amazing what happened yesterday, but it has nothing really to do with what's going to happen the next day and the day after that. Something happened that day that created a persistent change in them for all of the days that followed. Now, we don't know how long that lasted for them. We don't. There's nowhere else in the book of Acts that specifically says, and they, they initially were devoted, and then later they weren't so devoted. But since it's functioning as a template, we're meant to consider what is their devotion describing? What is that like? And then we're meant to stop and consider, am I devoted in the way they were devoted? Because... There's something going on here that was the evident result of the Spirit's work within their hearts, changing their deep heart priorities. So it's a persistent, single-minded focus on one thing above other things. Now, um, I don't know you in all of the details of your life, nor, nor, any more than you know me in all the details of my life. But have you ever in your life, and I'm not looking for a show of hands here, I just want you to consider this. Have you ever in your life, other than the Lord, other than church, other than what's being described here, have you ever been devoted to something or someone? I mean, really devoted to something or someone. Like it, this, this thing or this activity, this, this, this ongoing thing that you do, is more important to you than anything else. Or this one relationship to this one 
person is more important to you than anyone else in your life. And so you live differently toward that behavior or you live differently toward that person than you do toward any other behavior or activity or any other person that's in your life. Have you ever actually been devoted? And I'm not assuming that all of us have been. But if you have been, then I want you to consider how you were then toward that behavior or activity or how you were then toward that person to what is being described here. Because here, something rose in significance in their hearts to the level of persistent, single-minded devotion. This was more important to them than all other things. Now, how can you test the level of a true devotion? How do you test it? How do you know if you've ever really been devoted to something or someone like this? This is how you test devotion. Is it more important to you? Therefore, you prioritize it. Therefore, you, you always find the things that I'm devoted to, I always find time for those things. I always find ways to do what I want to do if it's something in the context of my heart's devotion. Or if I'm devoted to a person, I always find time for them. I always prioritize them, even above other important people in my life. Because you can be an important person in my life without me being devoted to you. But if I am devoted to you, you'll know it by recognizing the priority that I give to you above all others. So what were they devoted to? First of all, I think there's two things we need to consider here in this, in this emphasis on devotion. And I, I mention it in the overhead uh, outline here as looking for what isn't there and what is there. Well, what isn't there in this snapshot of early church life is you don't see any facility and focus, meaning they didn't, they didn't start a building fund. They didn't. There's no, they, they could have, they could have taken a special offering and say, look, we just got 3,120 people. We got to have some place to meet, right? So let's start a building fund. And there is no emphasis anywhere throughout all of the chapters of the book of Acts nor here in chapter two on let's make sure we have a place to meet. Now I'll talk in a minute about where they did meet and how it is that they had agreed upon meeting places. They met in two locations and we'll talk about that. But that wasn't their priority. Neither were, okay, we've got 3,120 people here. We gotta organize some programs for these people. We got to keep these people interested and we got to keep these people busy. And so we need to have lots and lots of good programs at a church level in order to maintain the interest level that we have on this special day. Because we don't have those programs, we're going to lose these people over time. There are no facilities and there's no programs. So in the absence of those things, the reason I mention those two things is those are two things that modern churches tend to focus most of their attention on. And it's just, listen, you know, we don't focus a lot of attention on either one of those things. And I'm not against either one of those things. We're meeting in a facility. I'm glad to be meeting here. We don't own it, of course. We rent it. I'm blessed to have a place to meet like this. But it's not our priority. It's never been our focus. And our programs, we have some programs as a church, 
But I will just tell you, the, the essence of our church life is not the programs that we have. And we don't prioritize forming new programs just to keep you interested. But there are many churches that focus on both of those things. And if they do, I'm saying that the reason they do is because of an evident lack of the one most important thing, which is devotion. A devoted church full of people aren't going to need to lean on having a special facility or have access to special programs. Their focus is somewhere else other than facility and program. So what did they focus on? What were they devoted to? Four things are mentioned in verse 42. Let me read that verse again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the first and earliest description of devoted church life that we find in church history. It doesn't mean that these are the only four things you can do as a church. But if it's functioning as a template, it is calling our attention to there's something about these four things that are mentioned that we should never leave out of our priorities as a church. So let's briefly talk about each one of these. The apostles' teaching. What we're talking about here is simply instruction in doctrine. Teaching the word of God and drawing from the word of God the principles that are meant to reform our perspectives, our understanding, and therefore ultimately our lives, our behaviors, our priorities, our choices, our decisions in life. I've got Matthew 28, 20 up there on the outline because that was, of course, part of the description of what we call the Great Commission. And the Lord Jesus, speaking to his apostles just prior to this, had said to them, "Uh, my commission to you is going to be, you're going to go out and you are going to, in fact, just let's jump back there for just a moment. Let me get back over there and, and read verse 20. I'll read 19 and 20 together. The Lord Jesus in his final words to the disciples says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That brings us up to the point of Acts 2.38, baptizing them. And then verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the apostles were given a commission by the Lord It's not just a preaching commission, it's also a teaching commission. Preaching is focused primarily on the unbeliever. Teaching is focused primarily on those that have already embraced the Lord and come to know the Lord. And they were called as apostles to teach those that had become identified with the Lord as true disciples, to teach them all that he had taught them. In other words, they weren't inventing new stuff They were simply passing on what they had learned from the Lord Jesus to those that had not yet learned those same life-transforming principles. And so that's why I mentioned the epistles as well. Our understanding of apostolic teaching is primarily focused on starting in the book of Romans all the way through to the book of Jude, what we call the epistles from the apostles. In other words, We have records of exactly what was the substance and focus of apostolic instruction. And it's why, as 
as healthy churches, we spend so much time focusing our attention in those epistles. The second thing that they were devoted to, fellowship. I think this is what I can only describe as an undervalued part of church life. It's the second thing mentioned after apostolic doctrine. I will tell you this. If you don't rightly understand apostolic doctrine, you may be saved, but just barely, and you certainly will not grow, and you will certainly not be a fruitful disciple of the Lord if you don't understand apostolic doctrine. But second only to that, the Lord mentions they were devoted to fellowship. This is a special word in the Greek language, koinonia. It means to to share something together with someone else. And of course, this sharing is not just between one individual and another. The entire church sharing life with other members of the same church. I say it's undervalued because it's common practice in many churches and I would say not entirely the story of this church, but the story for some in this church. And that is, as soon as the the official quote-unquote service time is over, the first priority for some among us is, I got to get to my car and I got to get going. I've got things to do. I've got a life to live. I've got plans for the day. I've got priorities. And what isn't a priority in that decision, and any one day that could be what each one of us does, and it's fine. But if it's an ongoing pattern of your life, that as soon as church ends, and you understand, right, that when the service ends, church doesn't end. Do you, you do understand that. Church is bigger than the service. Church is bigger than 9 to 10.30 every Sunday morning. So as soon as the service ends, if your priority is to get out of Dodge as quickly as you can, you're missing this second element of what they were devoted to. They were, de- what does it mean to be devoted to fellowship? It means that God has called you and I into a relationship that's like family. And it means that if I'm not valuing that in my heart, if, I, if I'm not devoted to that in my heart, then, you know, I'm, I'm not going to prioritize and make sure that I spend time with you outside of church service time. There is fellowship that takes place in, in the church service. We even carve out like just a couple of minutes after we sing our first song and David comes up and greets us and leads us in prayer and then he releases us to greet one another and we mill around the room and we connect with each other and that's true fellowship and praise God for it. But honestly, if that's the only fellowship you're getting, that one or two minutes right after the first song on Sunday morning, you're not getting what they got. And there, there is growth influence in the learning of apostolic doctrine, but there's also growth influence in true Christian fellowship. We grow from connecting to one another's life in the way that they connected to each other's life. The third thing is mentioned, breaking of bread. Now there's, among Bible teachers and scholars, there's debate about what exactly Luke meant when he said the breaking of bread. There's two possibilities. One, he could be talking about 
eating meals together. Just making sure that we sit down and eat food together. Because there is something about eating with someone where there's an opportunity to connect with that person in a greater way than if you've never had a meal with someone. But he could also be referring to what we call the table of the Lord, the communion table, and an ongoing devoted commitment to that. For me, I don't separate the two. I think both have uh, right emphasis, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to combine them together because I believe the early church ultimately did combine them together. Uh, I won't take us to read it, but I placed in your notes if you want to check it out in your own time. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 and 21. Paul there is teaching the Corinthian church about what we call communion, what we call the Lord's table. And one of the things that had developed in the early church, and uh, it's not commonplace in modern Christianity anymore, is that they would celebrate the Lord's table, but they combined it with eating a meal together. And they ended up calling this pattern of behavior as they met together as God's family, they called it an agape feast, a love feast, where Yes, they took what we call communion, the Lord's table, but they also, as part of that, would eat meals together. And in that section I gave you in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is actually addressing how the Corinthians later misunderstood and were not approaching that special agape feast in the right spirit, the right attitude, and the right heart perspective. So we value the table of the Lord so much as a church that we take it every Sunday morning as we gather together. And we also value eating food together in more casual, uh, just sharing a meal together kind of settings. And it's why we choose to do the third Sunday fellowship uh, the way that we do it and bring in pizza and, and spend some time of fellowship together and have a good discussion of the study from that Sunday morning and, and then literally just eat food together and enjoy each other's company and interact with each other in that way. I think both things are being described here and I think both things have just like the apostolic teaching and just like the commitment to fellowship, both things are meant to be a growth influence in the hearts of the people that participate in them. I will say this, since we don't do that, the third Sunday fellowship every Sunday, it is, I'll just be straight honest with you, it is sad to me that not everyone who is a committed member of this church is a committed member of the Third Sunday Fellowship. We have many that come on Third Sunday, but not everyone does. And to me, that reflects a lack of understanding of the template of what's being described here in Acts chapter 2. And you actually are missing out by not being there, and we are missing out because you're not there. The fourth element, they're committed to prayer. Maybe this is the most undervalued element of healthy, true, spirit-filled church life. Spirit-filled, healthy, God-devoted churches pray together. It's why we do, again, the Third Sunday Fellowship where we have times of prayer together. It's why we, a few years ago, decided to change our Sunday service and make sure there was at least some time in every service that we just stopped the entire service and prayed together as we did earlier today. And maybe there's much more that we could do in this regard as a church together. But at the very least, 
Why is prayer such an important part of healthy church life? Because it's in prayer more than anything else that we do that we remind ourselves of just entirely how dependent upon the Lord we actually are. And nothing will attack roots of pride in our heart more directly other than the word of God personally applied to us by the spirit of God than prayer. Because I'm just reminded every time I pray, I can't do this for myself, Lord. I need to lean on you. I need to trust in you. You're the only one that can do this for me or for others that matter to me. All right, then in verses 43 through 47, I'm just going to do a real quick overview of this portion. It's an interesting section. It's what I'm going to call a dramatic snapshot of earliest church life. There are verbs in this section that are action words. But they're all, all seven of them are in this same verb tense in the original Greek text. And we've been studying in our home church studies how, once a month, how important Greek verb t- tenses are in, in changing our perspective of, of what's being described in Scripture, especially in New Testament portions like this. And in this in this section, verses 43 through 47, you have a description, a snapshot of seven actions that are taking place, and they're all in what is called the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense is a repeated thing. It's something that happens over and over again, and it emphasizes action that's taking place on an ongoing basis. And that's why I'm using the word dramatic to describe it. It's a snapshot of the Lord at work in the midst of his people and the things that were just percolating among them as a result. Now, the English translation we're reading from, in some cases, highlights those seven things and in some cases doesn't. But I'm going to use an ing verb to emphasize this is an ongoing thing and I'll apply it to all seven things here. What was going on among them was they were feeling awe on an ongoing basis. The word awe is the Greek word phobos. And we still use a form of that verb in our language today. We refer to it as a phobia. Now what is a phobia? It's a fear. They were feeling, literally translated, they were feeling fear. Is that a good thing in church life? This kind of fear is not just a good thing, it's a great thing. Because when you are feeling fear about something, not in an unhealthy way, not in a deadly way or or a spiritually dangerous way, but in a way of, I value this thing so much, I want to capture this. I want to hold on to this. I'm afraid of ever losing this. It's so important to me. That's the kind of fear they were feeling. They were feeling fear, a life-altering fear, a priority-altering fear. I am just freshly filled with the Spirit of God if I'm in their midst. I'm freshly filled with the Spirit of God and the Lord has done this amazing thing and he's joined the 3,000 of us together as his family. I don't want to lose this. They were afraid of that in a good and healthy way. Second, apostolic signs and wonders were being done. Now, two things here. One is the Lord was at work 
and amazing, unusual, miraculous ways. But the primary way that he was at work was through the avenue of the ministry of the apostles. Meaning this is, this is a special thing that the Lord was doing right at the beginning of church life. This doesn't mean that there will never be other miracles beyond this day and this moment in history. The book of Acts, there are occasional miracles that take place throughout the book of Acts as we'll encounter them. But the Lord did more right at the very beginning of church life in order to make it clear and evident that this was his work. This is a special thing that was going on. Just like he did more miracles through the ministry of the Lord Jesus than he did through the ministry of any of the prophets of the Old Testament that had preceded him. To make it clear that this was his doing. Third, and we'll talk more in more detail in just a moment about this, they were selling. What were they selling? Personal possessions and personal belongings. And as they sold those, they were also in an ongoing way distributing the proceeds of those sales to all. And who the all is? As any among them were needing. There's an ongoing need that was taking place within the context of the church family. And so personal possessions were being sold and personal uh, personal finances as proceeds from those sales were being distributed in order to, in an ongoing way, meet the needs among them. Next, they were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Every single time they sat down at a meal, they were, in a special way, they were remembering the one who had blessed them with this food. They were appreciative. They were happy because of the blessing that the Lord was overflowing their lives with in that circumstance. And then finally, the Lord was adding to their number day by day as he was reaching into the lost world around them and rescuing and saving more to continue to add to their number. All right, next section. I want to focus in verses... um, uh, 44 uh, through to, I've got the wrong uh, verses there. I've got 32 through 35. It's 44 through uh, 45. I want to focus on the detail here because it's commonly questioned by good-hearted believers that read this and wonder, gosh, this is, this is interesting what was going on, but it's kind of scary in a sense. Um, verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So the question I want to ask is, was the early church a socialist institution? And I will just tell you, if you look for them, I don't recommend that you do, but if you look for them, you can find Bible scholars publish commentaries on this particular section of scripture and insist that that's exactly what you're seeing here. The early church was a socialist institution. And when there's a lot of discussion in our society today about socialism and how should we respond to that question, 
Was the early church a socialist institution? I would just say definitively, exclamation point, no. The early church was not a socialist institution. And these two verses are not describing a socialist moment in earliest church history. Why? What's the difference? Socialism does look similar to this. At first glance, you can read this and and you can draw the conclusion that this is describing a socialist political kind of event that's taking place here. But there is an important difference. What's happening here in the early church is the exact opposite of socialism rather than identical to it or in a principle sense similar to it. In socialism, in true socialism, the priority is equality. And we're talking about finances, financial equality. Financial equality in the society. And that equality is imposed because the understanding is not everybody wants to be equal. So in, a, in, a, in any society, you have people that have more than others and people that have less than others. And you, you, the easy targets are people like Elon Musk, right? You know, he's, I don't know what his current, because he, he gains and loses billions of dollars every day. So just depending on what recent news, like, you know, one day he might lose $10 billion. Okay, whatever, he sells some stock and he gains you know, five billion more the next day, and then the next day after that, another 10, mil, 10 billion. And so, you know, his life is just financially completely different than ours. But the idea of, of societies is in every society, some have more, others have less. And who do you think would be in favor of the equality principle in that equation? The ones that have less would be more in favor, and they're always in the majority of just numbers. There's always fewer that have more and more that have less. And so when people are urging, political people are urging, let's become socialist, they're representing the needs of those that have less and saying, let's make laws and let's have our government impose equality on everyone. So we'll take almost everything from Elon Musk, and he just represents the rich, and we will redistribute the wealth and make sure that everybody in this entire nation has the exact same amount. That's socialism in its purest form in action. Now, in history, the way it works out, and I don't want to turn this into a political science thing, but in history, the way it works out is it never works out that way. There's always a ruling elite in every socialist country that has ever given itself over to socialist principles. They, they may not they may not advertise the fact that the people that are on top and in charge of all that have more than everybody else, but it's always been that way, and it always will be that way because of human nature. And human nature is ultimately greedy. So is this socialism? The answer is no. This is not top-down imposed equality. This is bottom-up equality as the Spirit of God is at work in the hearts of the true believers, and they are being compelled by true agape love that's in their hearts out of care, consideration, and concern for others in their midst that are not as presently blessed as they are. And so what we have here is we have what can be misunderstood as socialism but is actually agape love in evidence. Now, I put in the notes here, Acts chapter 5, verses one through four. I'm gonna save the full explanation of that for when we eventually get to chapter five in our study. But essentially there's an interaction between Peter 
and a couple that were in the church, a husband and wife. The, the thing that happened was, as people were selling personal possessions and giving them for the blessing of the wider body that had needs, these two basically came forward and they sold a piece of property and they gave part of it to the church for redistribution and they withheld part of it and they lied about what they gave and what they withheld. And Peter said, there was nothing wrong with you withholding whatever you wanted to withhold. It's up to you. The, the, this, this property was yours. The money from the proceeds of the sale of the property was yours. It was up to you to decide how much to give. And the Lord wasn't imposing any requirement on you in that regard. But what was wrong was you lied about it. You, 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 you sinned in your gift in this circumstance. And we'll see how seriously the Lord took that when we eventually get to chapter five. But that's the difference is in socialism, the state is the owner and the possessor of everything. There is no such thing as private property. Biblically, we see from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, the Lord himself has, has instilled into human societies the principles of private property. But here, we have agape love overwhelming the natural inclination to greedily hold for ourselves as much as we possibly can. The Spirit of God and the love of God is moving in the hearts of his people to generously share out of their overflow what is needed among the rest in the family of God. Now, I've got a line here in the notes Uh, context, Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I want you to understand the circumstances of what was going on in this situation, and that is that on the day of Pentecost, it was a pilgrim holiday. It was a pilgrim holy day. It was one of the seven great Jewish feasts from the old covenant law of Moses. And there were there were uh, devout Jews from all over the world that had traveled to the city of Jerusalem in order to participate in the Feast of Pentecost. 3,000 of them. There were many more than that that came to the city of Jerusalem, but 3,000 of them were saved that day here on the day of Pentecost. And now the day of Pentecost ends and the next day has arrived and all the days following and out of those 3,000, we don't know how many lived in the city of Jerusalem or how many were visiting there for the feast, but when the feast ended, those that had come to the city for the feast and were saved, they didn't want to leave and go back home. Why? This is, a, this is the work of the Lord. I don't want to leave what the Lord is doing. I don't want to miss out on this special thing that the Lord is doing. So they literally disrupted their entire life in order to stay connected to this new thing that the Lord was doing in forming this church this new work of the Lord in history. And so as a result, many left not just homes, but jobs, their source of income. And now they were in the city of Jerusalem. They had probably brought enough money in order to provide for themselves lodging and food for the duration of the Pentecost feast. But that money had run out. And so you had people that in a good way, holy way, wanted to stay and be part of this work of the Lord but they didn't have any income yet and they didn't have any way to provide for themselves. And so those that did have the means, those that did have property, those that did have extra finances chose to in deeply generous 
loving hearts for their fellow church members. They sold properties, they distributed the proceeds, and they provided for the needs, the basic needs of everyone. They're not buying Cadillacs for everyone, but they are providing to make sure everyone had a place to live and everyone had food to eat. Uh, Tim, if you wanted to go ahead and get ready, that'd be great. Um, Last detail along these lines. They distributed as any had need. Just to be clear, any here is referring to any among them, any of the church, any of the new spiritual family. This doesn't mean that the church is never to be generous toward the world surrounding it. The Lord has given us opportunity and the Lord continues to give his people opportunity to be a blessing to those in great need in the world around us, like in times of famine, like in Kenya, like we've been participating in famine relief there. Uh, But here the focus is not on meeting the needs of everybody in the city of Jerusalem, but the church family that has been formed. And the equality that is the result, and we're talking about financial resource equality, is one that has been encouraged, not imposed by the Lord. It's a work of his spirit and an evidence of his agape love at work within them. Now, the last thing I want to say about this is there is something here, though. If Acts 2 is is focusing our attention on what happened among them as a template, there's something here that I think we're meant to pay attention to and will stretch us beyond our personal comfort zones. Um, The Lord has blessed each person that's here with a certain amount of finances and a certain amount of resources. And he may have blessed you with more than you actually need. And if he has, there should be in your heart's perspective at least a consideration in prayer of, Lord, why have you given me more than I need? Why have you given me more than I need? And I'm not saying it's, it's for my sake because it's not. I, the Lord has given me more than I need. So if that's the case, what are we to do with the abundance of what the Lord has given us? And for them, it wasn't a hoarding conclusion. It was a giving conclusion. Now, um, I'm going to skip over the last, uh, second to last um, slide that I have up here, two more details. Uh, I think it's somewhat self-explanatory, but um, I would just mention this one thing out of that. I said earlier, I'll address where they met, and I said they met in two locations. One location was they met in the temple. There was a, an outdoor portion of the temple called Solomon's Court, and they met under a roof for inclement weather, but it was gigantic. It was huge, and it would accommodate 3,000 people easily for a meeting. What was interesting about then their earliest meetings as a church is they were meeting in public. They were meeting in a courtyard where there were other Jewish citizens of the city of Jerusalem that were there to worship the Lord in the temple but did not believe and did not understand that Jesus was Messiah. But the church was willing because it was the place the Lord had provided for such a large crowd to gather without building their own facility. They met there in public. And then the second place they met, as is described in the text that we read, they would meet in their homes to share the meals that the Lord provided for them. All right, that brings us to our application for today. And I've been kind of 
emphasizing this all along through the teaching, but let me emphasize it one last time before we sing our last song. I think if this is a template, we're to do this. We're to compare with that key word in focus that began our study, compare our devotion to the devotion we see in evidence in the hearts of the earliest Christians. For me, I don't want to be less devoted than them. I don't. I want to be as devoted as them. And that leads me to self-examination and prayer about the state of my heart's devotion. I would hope it would lead you to that as well. And then finally, um, what I was just emphasizing, evaluate the blessings that the Lord has poured out on your life. And I'm talking here very tangibly, very practically. Blessings of finances, blessings of resources. Evaluate your blessings in light of the needs that may arise in God's family surrounding you and uh, recognize that he may have blessed you with more for specific purposes. All right, let's bring our study to an end and sing one last song of worship to him.